Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. With me as always is Tom Nixon. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jay. How are you today? Good, thanks. Um, Tom, I wanted to just begin. You you wrote a uh, what I think is a great blog post on our on our site this week. Um, it was kind of talking about the sort of the mental game of thought leadership. How you you need to essentially take care of of your asset, which is your your mind and your body, in order to be able to kind of have new insights and and be an effective thought leader. So I just had a quick question about that post, Tom, before we get started, which I really liked. I, one aspect of it that I liked is that you kind of crowdsourced some of the recommendations on LinkedIn. I thought that was cool. Uh, but is there anything that you took away from that post that you intend to implement in your own, I guess, routine? Very interesting. Well, one of the things, yeah. So what did I learn from my own piece, right? That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, it was so insightful that I even learned something myself. No, but the crowdsourcing aspect of it just reaffirmed something that I've been sort of averse to. And I can't tell you why, maybe it's the Catholic upbringing, but this whole concept of mindfulness, like if there's ever a time for somebody to pursue mindfulness, is it not now, right? After the last six months we've had. So I know I've, I've probably even told you before on this podcast that I'm making it a resolution to actually just look into it and try it. And that's the big thing I'm taking away. I mean, more and more you hear people say that, you know, breathing techniques, walking, which is something that I do anyway, um, that these sort of techniques do have an effect, you know, in a scientific effect proven, you know, researched at least um, to have positive effects on the mind, body, and spirit. So that's one thing that I maybe didn't learn, but I've, I've hit, you know, over my head a number of times to the point now where I'm, I'm ready to embrace it. Yeah, agreed. I think that's, that is important. And I, I know, I think someone mentioned the uh, waking up app, Sam Harris's meditation app. I don't meditate consistently at all. I'd sort of, you know, I've done it. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I think it's valuable. Um, but that might be something interesting to check out too, is I think that, I think that app is, is really good for if you do, are interested in mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. There are a number, number of apps out there too. And I guess I would say for the skeptics, like I was and am start with just the walking piece of it. Cause walking is a part of, you know, that sort of uh, methodology. I've just found just from, this is why I think I'm embracing it more. It's just the act of walking and clearing my mind and being alone with well, my dogs in maybe some music or a podcast that that is a reset button that has all sorts of benefits that last throughout the day. So you could start there. And if you see some benefit there, then, then move further into mindfulness. Cool. Well, anyone that wants to check that out, it's on our site uh, and you can, you can view the blog post. Um, and I think those are, it'll have some great tips for you. And speaking of tips, we've got a, a guest today who's going to share some really interesting uh, tips and insights with us. Scott Love is a legal recruiter who focuses on national partner placement for Amlaw 100 and 200 law firms. He's an expert on the topic of business development strategy and uses this skill to help partners reach their full potential in joining a new firm. Scott is the producer and host of the Rainmaking podcast, is on the board of the National Association of Legal Search Consultants, and enjoys speaking at conferences on topics such as recruiting, retention, and business development. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and lives in Richmond, Virginia with his family. In addition to, le uh, in addition to working as a legal recruiter, Scott's also a professional watercolor artist. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Yeah. 
good to have you here as well. And well, before we get into uh, the main subject of our conversation today, which is the five key attributes of successful partners, I- I'm interested to hear, Scott, just a little divergence here, but I guess what uh, what led you to get uh, become a watercolor artist? Like, when did you get into that? And um, and just I don't know what do you what do you get from that uh, practice? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I went to the Naval Academy, which was like a four year college, but you are in prison for four years, and then you get a degree, right. and then you get to have a really cool job. You get to join the join the Navy, the Marine Corps, and it was uh, it was a lot of adversity. So I would do a lot of sketching and I found that by sketching, it gave me healing. By being around art, it gave me healing. I would spend every weekend hanging out at this fine art gallery in downtown Annapolis. And then later on in my adult life, started experimenting with different types of media and that really gave watercolor a a lot of focus. And I love it. I paint almost every day. And I found that uh, just the way Winston Churchill, he even wrote a book called Painting as a Pastime. And he says that just like what you all were talking about with meditative activities, when you focus, when you just say, I'm just going to sit here and not think about anything, it's really hard to do that. But when you have an activity that you can focus on that's not in alignment with work and it's outside of work, then that actually gives you healing when you come back to your work. And that's something I experience with uh, with art every day. Yeah, that's cool. I I've been observing that in my wife. She uh, she's a she's a very creative person. She's our partner in our business. She's our creative director, so she does a lot of design work. And she over the last few months picked up painting. She's doing acrylic painting. But I've That's noticed great. some of those benefits in her. Just a calmness, um, an enthusiasm, yeah, yeah. Um, all those all those things. So I think yeah, those those creative practices, whether it's you know writing or or art or some other creative practice, is is valuable regardless of what you absolutely. do. Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's get into the uh, the meat of our discussion here today, uh, which is talking about you know some of the the attributes, habits, and behaviors of successful law firm partners. Um, so you you provided a, a list of five of these things to us, Scott. So let's w- work through them. Uh, the sure. first the first quality or attribute that you you said is that um, successful partners have a business plan. So I guess in your experience, what is it that a, a successful or an effective business plan looks like? Like what are the types of uh, I, things that should be identified and, and dealt with in a business plan? Right. I think that any business plan is a good business plan. Any type of activity that you do that is paper uh, focused where you're putting thoughts on paper, that's a good business plan. What what's it, what's What are the criteria of what has to be in there? It's almost like, you know, it, it doesn't matter as much as long as you have one but I have seen a lot of business plans and I think that, and I'd kind of segment it into three different uh, parts of that. One of them is identifying your resources. What are the resources that you have that can solve client problems? And a lot of it can be in-depth expertise. It can be specialized knowledge. It can be certain focus areas. It can be other attributes uh, that you can bring to the table as well, but really being clear, what are the resources, which firm are you with and articulating those uh, on that document. The second is identifying what are, what are your goals? What are the targets and the goals that you have? And then the third part is what action steps you're going to take to accomplish those goals. How can you bring those resources to achieve the goals that you've laid in front of you? Yeah, that 
That really resonates. And I, I totally agree. I think the the first point you were making was extremely important is that people sometimes get hung up on, you know, what's the format of this? What should be, you know, what are, what should my, my subject headings be? Um, what do I need to include? And, and you're right. I mean, it really can consist of anything um, right. in the sense that almost anything, you know, within reason can work for developing new business or marketing your practice. Um, what, what really, you know, some some people write prolifically. Other people public speak. Others are are networkers. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. there's a multitude of activities you you can engage in. The key thing though is that you do need to you need to move from that planning stage to action. So make your plan, keep it simple, um, but but make sure you're not endlessly planning and and you're actually moving right. forward with, with right. action. Yeah, you know, um, Tom, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I was just going to follow up on that, Scott. We did an episode um, pretty recently just about planning. You know, it's going, we're fourth quarter, we're looking ahead at a new year. And um, one thing that Jay and I were in agreement about is this notion that not letting the perfect become the enemy of the good enough. Kind of like you said, it's right. it's more right. important that you have one than it is that it's perfect. And uh, Jay and I were kind of on two ends of a pretty short spectrum. You know, Jay suggested you could probably get something really done well uh, inside of four hours or two hours mm-hmm. in two pages. And I went even further. I said, I bet you could do it in an hour on one page and you'd be better off than you were the hour previous. Right. So um, I'm curious if you could just follow up on, you know, how is, is there methodology to finding out what is the right approach to just get off your duff and create the plan for the first time for those who haven't yet ever. And, and for people that haven't, this is what I'd recommend is set an alarm on your clock on your phone for 30 minutes, hmm. because I found that starting something is the hardest part. I deal with partners when they're moving from one firm to another. There's one part of our process called the lateral partner questionnaire. Every firm gives them a 21 page document. I mean, it's a long document that usually takes a lot of time. And I just say, just set your alarm on your phone for 30 minutes and just start. And what usually happens is once the alarm goes off, they, they hit snooze or they cancel it and they keep going. Yeah. And so that kind of forces us and we're all human beings. We all have this resistance to do things that are uncomfortable. Uh, procrastination is the avoidance of stress. We feel stress because we have an activity that we have to do. We feel stress thinking about it. So we're not going to think about it. We're not going to do it. We're going to kick the can and do it someday. And so I'd say just set your, set your alarm for 30 minutes, set your timer for 30 minutes on your phone and see how far you get. And, and I like what you said, Tom, even if you just spend an hour, that hour means you're so much further ahead than you were the previous hour. Yeah, exactly. Cool, I like that. Um, because the 30 minutes does not sound insurmountable. You know, even an hour seems like a long time, but 30 minutes, you know, really right. everyone could find 30 minutes. And, and um, one thing, and, and I had a couple of ideas, even if they started with, what is it that is unique about you? What can you say? about your skills, about your expertise that nobody else in the world can say about anything. Identify what is that point of distinction. If you just start with that, yeah. that's a really good uh, good starting point because now you're really starting to get to the essence of sales, which is first starting with what's unique about you, what's distinct about your offering, your service, and even just starting with that and seeing how far you get. Which sort of dovetails into the second attribute that you cite, which, um, is near and dear to our hearts. It was our first episode ever on this podcast tackled the subject. We return to it often. It's almost universally cited by success stories who look back and say, at what point did you see things turn around or start this upward trajectory for your firm? They almost always cite the following attribute. But 
it's among the most scary for attorneys to embrace because it seems counterintuitive. And this attribute that you cite is that they have a niche. Mm-hmm. So um, it's nice to hear yet another person come on, another expert come on and, and, and make this validation for us because we get resistance all the time. So can you give us a couple of ideas of niche areas of focus that maybe even real world examples, and you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but successful attorneys who have worked within niches, which speaks to what you just said, right? It's the right. narrowing of the of the uh, competitive landscape by right. focusing. And, and I think the fear that people have is they fear they're going to miss out on something. So they've got to do everything. It kind of reminds me of my when my little girl, she's, she turns nine this year. A few years ago, we had a Chuck E. Cheese birthday party, which is always an amazing experience. And when you see her, they put her in this booth that uh, has this air swirling around. You put the kid in the booth, they, they have the air swirling around. There's hundreds, if not thousands of tickets flying around them. And you see this little kid just grasping for all these tickets. And at the end of 60 seconds, she walks out and she's holding one ticket. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's the analogy is spot on. Oh my God, I'm going to use that, Scott. <laughs> and I think the, all the flailing around, that's our natural instinct because I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. And I've worked with partners in, uh, uh, in trademark, uh, patent litigation, patent prosecution, trademark transactions, corporate transactional, private equity, white collar litigation, antitrust. I've placed all those different people and every single person has some sort of specialized expertise that is not valuable to everybody, but it's valuable to some. I remember about six years ago, I placed a trademark partner and he was with the big firm and I pulled him in, placed him in another big firm. And I told him, I said, the one thing that's unique about your expertise as a trademark partner is that every company in the world is a prospect and you might not go very deep. You're not gonna go deep, 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 deep in just a handful of companies, but you can get a little bit off of everybody else. And so I think understanding what is the uniqueness that somebody has and, and do they go deep with companies or are they going to do a little bit with a certain, a certain sector? I've also seen some companies or some firms, there's one firm that I worked with that recently went through a merger and it was a very successful merger and their specialty was franchise law. And the way I would sell their opportunity to partners I talked to that with, with larger full service firms, I said, if you can't be number one in the world, be number one in a subcategory. And I said, who was the first person to ever fly across the Atlantic solo? Charles Lindbergh, who was the second? Nobody cares. But who was the first female to do it? Amelia Earhart. If you can't be number one in the world, be number one in a subcategory. And so they were able to find certain categories where they could be number one in the world in franchise law. They're dealing with big global franchises. And I also think that uh, for partners that I talk to and I pay attention and I read a lot of business plans. And one of the things that I absolutely love about what I do is that it's all about client development. And when you bring a partner from firm A to firm B, you're bringing that partner that has and has already earned trusted advisor relationships. And those clients hopefully are going to follow. And knowing when a partner understands what's the niche that you have, what are those trends that you've seen in the past that you can predict in the future that there's going to be opportunities here. And when you start to assess this, and, and sometimes it even requires talking with your clients, the clients that you really are close to, asking them, what do you see as my value? And not every client you're gonna be able to do that with, but there are a few that are the kind of people that become friends of yours that will tell you, well, this is what you're really good at. I think getting an objective perspective by a consultant that understands those things. There's a lot of good business development coaches out there, people that really understand that. 
they can kind of help partners really ascertain where is your unique strength, that unfair competitive advantage. Yeah, and as as Tom mentioned, Scott, it's it's certainly a, a this is a big part of our our discussion on this podcast as well as our our, our practice, our our through marketing and coaching and consulting we do with lawyers. Um, you know, narrowing down on a on a niche area is is critically important because for the reasons you stated, it's the thing that allows you by you narrow enough to the point where you're able to reduce or outright eliminate competition. That's extremely right. important. That's right. And absolutely. And you know, just for lawyers out there, you can think of it in two ways. I mean, you mentioned trademark lawyer, trademark as a as a niche area, Scott, and that's what we oftentimes call a horizontal niche or a practice niche. Mm-hmm. And then the, the industry vertical uh, niche would be the other where you're you are going deep within um, you know one one industry as opposed to serving a number of them. And and some some people combine both, right? They have a, a practice niche and an industry niche. Um, if the industry is big enough, you can you can make that work. Uh, so right. I think that's, and one other follow-up point on this, and maybe if you could comment on it, if you'd like, but in our experience, we tend to find that those who have a, a narrow uh, niche focus tend to be the best thought leaders in the space too, because because they're focused on one area, they're able to spot the patterns, um, create interesting insights. They're just immersed and steeped within that topic or that that group of people who are dealing with similar problems over and over. And as a result of that, they, they're able to typically really contextualize things for that audience and become real thought leaders. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. You're absolutely right. And what you're talking about is the point where now price dissipates that uh, how much do you charge? That's not really the issue. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is when I talk with these big, highly regarded law firms, big global firms, and some of them might be competing with much larger firms. And one thing they've even shared with me is that uh, one of our uh, attractive, attractive aspects is that we can go lower on price. And the, I always get concerned when I hear that. I don't think it's bad for some partners that are coming from firms where they're charging enormously high rates to go to another firm, but I don't think that's the starting point of the conversation. I think the starting point of the conversation is what's unique about you and what you just said, Jay, that unique specialized knowledge. When you're weighing price versus unique specialized knowledge, where you have solved problems for dozens of people just like me that have my same unique challenges, I'll pay dearly for that because you understand not just what those challenges are, but you understand the nuance associated with those. And so I I think that some partners might not give themselves, and when I say partners, I mean any attorney that's involved in business development, they might not give themselves the credit for really seeing where that that niche is and that value is. There was one partner I was talking with, I don't wanna mention any sort of practice area or industry, but he worked in an area that he could work in any industry. And most of the cases came from healthcare, life sciences. And, and that was one thing he said, I don't want to be categorized as a specialist. I want to be a generalist. I'm like, you know, I know you're, you're saying this, but I think you're missing veins of gold because that's an area where what you do, it has the potential to spin off the type of work that you're looking for. So, you know, it's, it's tough for us to see our own challenges. I tell my wife, I can solve anybody's problem except for my own. You know, I'm too yep. close to it. And that's why I think people like you offer tremendous value to partners where you can really kind of tell them, look, look what you do, look what you're good at, look what you're not good at. This is where you need to focus on. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, and to get back to your point about pricing, we always say rarely do do a recognize does a recognized expert in a niche have to participate in an RFP process with other lawyers, right. um, and there's a reason for that. Okay, um, that's great. Let's go on to our next attribute, uh, which is good leadership skills and people skills. So this is something that that uh, successful partners have in common. Um, why don't you just riff on that for a minute, Scott, in terms of uh, what you see and maybe what you mean by, I think sometimes people think about leadership skills as something for CEOs of, of companies and not necessarily lawyers, but what does that mean in the context of the practice of law? It's your ability, and, and I'll kind of say it's the concept of being emotionally aware, emotional intelligence, Dan Goldman's, uh, to, to quote him and his definition, it's being able to manage your own emotions effectively and to positively influence the emotions of other people. And this is what I learned when I was on active duty. Here I was, third in command of a Navy ship. I graduated from the Naval Academy. I'm an officer in the Navy, and I go to a ship, and every sailor hates two things. They hate officers, and they hate the Navy. And so you've got to learn how to lead in a way that it's more than just the authority because I'm the boss of you. You got to do what I say. You've got to earn that trust. You've got to earn that leadership. And so I always believe in game theory, figure out what are the odds, put your money on the felt when you have a mathematical advantage. I used to be a a card counting blackjack player years ago. Two of the uh, members of the MIT blackjack team mentored me. It's like a, like a side business. And so I look at game theory. If I know what motivates you, I'm going to have that on my mind as I talk with you. It's about becoming followable. And a partner might say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm a partner of a firm with 500 other attorneys. Well, yes, you are, because you have to act in a way that gets other people to choose to want to go out of their way to help you. They'll do it because they have to. You're a partner. Your fortunes are tied together, but you want to get them to where they want to help you. And the same way where you bring that leadership into the client relationship, you set the tone with the meeting, you set the expectations. This is what you can expect from me. And this is what I need to expect from you. You set the benchmark, uh, you set the, the plan of this is where we're going to go. This is what I'm going to do. And we're going to do this. And this is the next step. Does that make sense? I think being able to take that authoritative role when you're talking with your clients and your new clients also, and then also knowing that I think leadership also is being selfless. It's knowing that it's not about you, it's about the team. When you can go out of your way to help people within your firm, it's like there is this invisible bank account with each colleague of yours, and you wanna focus on putting deposits in that bank account more than withdrawals. It's like, uh, I remember meeting this man that had been married to his wife for 60 years. I met him at a nursing home uh, years ago, And I was talking with him. I said, what's the secret of staying married for 60 years? And he said, Sonny, it's give and take, but mostly give. And when you live your life that way, people choose to want to follow. They want to follow those people that are followable. And selflessness is extremely attractive. Do you want to be the person that comes into a room at a party and says, here I am, or you're in a party and you see somebody you haven't seen, you say, oh, there you are. That's the kind of person that we're all attracted to. It's becoming followable is how you become a better leader. Yeah, and I love the, go ahead, finish up. Uh, sorry, I'll just make one last follow-up, Tom, and then I'll throw it over to you. I was just going to say, I, I think that that issue of, of leadership is, is critical. I mean, if you want to build a practice, I mean, I saw it certainly in the among the colleagues uh, I worked for when I was a, a younger lawyer. Um, 
one of the only ways that you can benefit beyond your own capacity to build more hours is to build a team around you by exhibiting leadership skills. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck in the weeds, um, you know, managing clients as opposed to building new client relationships. So I think that I just wanted to emphasize that point. I think it's critically important. That's a great point. The point I wanted to emphasize was this uh, concept of uh, making more deposits than withdrawals. People in the uh, content marketing business are constantly singing this refrain because, you know, when you're doing content marketing or thought leadership marketing, as we like to call it, it's easy to see all the deposits you're making. It's difficult early on to understand where the withdrawals come from. And so we coach our clients to be patient because like any other deposit, it's going to accrue interest. Eventually, it will be there when you need it, and eventually, you know, it'll be much easier and more comfortable to make that withdrawal. So, absolutely uh, right. I love that. And a quick book recommendation that I think I've made before is a book called The Go Giver. So, a take on The Go Getter. If you haven't read that, Scott, you would love that. That's great. I'll check that out. I think I read that years ago. Yeah. Well, I wanted to move over speaking, uh, you know, in our bailiwick in terms of marketing is one of the attributes that you ascribe to successful partners is that you say they take the initiative such as creating their own events. And I think you're making the distinction between not relying on say the firm's marketing department to do all the marketing for you, create the events and just invite you to show up. So am I reading that right? And how would you define, you know, making your own moments or making your own events? I would say yes and yes. I would say working with the marketing department, if I was a partner in a big firm and I joined a big firm, I would want to, I want to want to get to know who are the staff within the firm's marketing department, what are the resources that they have. I've met a lot of people involved in the Legal Marketing Association community. I spoke at one of their conferences virtually a couple of weeks ago, talking about the relationship between recruiting partners and marketing, and that there's a lot of gaps that a lot of firms are just falling short. They're not harvesting resources that they have internally with marketing. So if I was a partner coming into a firm, I would, I would wanna develop some partnerships with my colleagues and the staff at the staff level. I would wanna to get to know who are they and build affiliation because these are people that are hungry to provide value in their firms. And I think a lot of firms just don't see that resource and they just don't, they just, they just don't use it. I also think that uh, there is going to be some investment that partners or any attorney is gonna to have to make his, on, a, on his own or her own. Uh, in terms of spearheading ideas and going out and building those relationships and not depending upon the marketing people within the team to do it, but to reach out to trade association presidents and executive directors. Uh, If you're involved in a certain industry niche, reach out to those people if you're not already. See about getting, and I know you guys probably teach this, getting articles published in those trade publications, doing online programs as well, but even saying, let's host an event and assuming COVID ends, you know, we're all back in offices at some point, hosting it within your firm's office. So I would say absolutely work with the resources that you have within your firm, but also don't be afraid to take some initiative on your own. Yeah, and I, I just think, you know, having worked with large firms, you can't expect, I totally agree that you need to leverage the resources that are in the in your own house. You can't expect that they will have the amount of bandwidth that you need them to have to execute your entire marketing or business development program for you. So going back to planning, I would take that into account as you're creating your own plan. What do you need to do? And then what can you do internally with the resources your firm might already have? And maybe they already have the machine in place to do some of the things that you aspire to do. So it's a combination. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, 
really like those points, Scott. And and you know, another I guess example of the principle that you're sharing is, uh, which is a relatively easy one for many lawyers to do, is if you're on LinkedIn, try to develop relationships with editors and reporters at the publications that you're hope that your target audience reads because it's relatively easy to do. And especially in this media environment where they've suffered so much uh, during COVID-19 and just over the last decade, generally, they're, they're looking for expert resources like you to help bring them story ideas, to serve as sources for stories. That's an area where you can definitely take some initiative um, from a marketing PR standpoint yeah, with, with relatively, idea, relatively little effort. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even if they see a story that a reporter wrote, even if they don't agree, if they've got a contrarian point of view, email them and say, I, I like what you wrote. However, you may want to consider these points because then they'll keep that attorney in mind as a future source. And as you know, the way those reporters work, they're going to see who's getting quoted and they're going to reach out to those people. So after a period of time, after you've been quoted a few times, they're actually going to start calling you people that you've never heard of before from other publications, just because they've they've read your, your uh, quotes and mentions before. Yeah, right. There, there's a, you know, it's like the 80-20 rule or, or some, some, I don't know if that's exactly the right, uh, right analogy, but um, you, those who, those who get quoted, get quoted in new, uh, new articles as well. So I agree with you. Um, all right. So let's turn to our next uh, topic, which is successful partners have regular habits. So this, I, I think this is extremely important um, and, and, and very true. So Scott, just talk a little bit about maybe some of the types of habits that those who are in, um, you know, in that realm of what that we would call successful partners have. Sure. And what gave me this idea was thinking of a young up and coming partner that has taken, taken action and has built his own personal brand. And he's built this following within his niche, within the industry that he works. And he's developed a lot of credibility. He's, he's someone that's done some of the, his own events that he was telling me about. And he said he has a goal each year to have 50 meaningful connections with prospects. A connection could be an encounter at a conference. It could be a phone call. It could be a luncheon. It could be a Zoom meeting. It was just a meaningful connection with the prospect. 50 of those, you know, how'd you get 50? And he said, one a week. And I thought that's brilliant. Yeah. If you just say, I'm going to have one meaningful connection with a significant client prospect each week, that's a good habit. You could also incorporate this. So with my podcast, the Rainmaking podcast, we produce one show a week. So I have at least one meaningful interview each week. I've got other regular metrics that I set up in terms of writing. What if you wrote every Tuesday and every Thursday for 30 minutes and well, I don't know what to write. Well, make a list first of everything that you know and, and that, that pertains to what you do and start at that point and read articles that you see written within your space. And I used to think nobody reads articles. Then I started reading articles and then you just see how many of them are out there. And a lot of people make decisions based on who those thought leaders are, who's getting quoted, who's getting mentioned. And it all starts with writing something. And if you say, I'm going to do this two days a week and it becomes a regular habit, then over a period of time, it's going to be easy and it's going to be something that you eventually look forward to if you don't already. Yeah. And um, you, you mentioned the word habit, um, Sandler sales training. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They call them behaviors sure. and they preach to all of their um, you know, students or, or trainees that you focus on measuring the behaviors because that's something you can control. 
and not the outcomes. The outcomes puts too much sure. pressure on the person trying to d- develop the relationship or the, the new piece of business, but the habits or the behaviors are things you can control. You can commit to and execute one meaningful conversation per week. No question. That's right. One thing I started doing, oh, and I'm sorry, Tom, did you have another question? No, go ahead. And, and I like what you said. And one thing that that reminded me of about three and a half years ago, I started keeping an Excel spreadsheet and I have, uh, I have uh, three different columns. The first column is for the date. At the end of the day, I I document in my Excel spreadsheet, what was my greatest achievement for the day? And I write that down. I got a new client, had an offer for a candidate, got a new candidate that said yes, or something like that. I'll document that. The next column is what was my biggest lesson learned? What was one thing I made a mistake on? And I'll document that as painful as it is. I'll document, I screwed up on this. I didn't call them back soon enough or whatever it was. And then my other column is whatever my metric is. And I have certain metrics for my business. I'll document and I've got two columns. So it's really four columns, but you need to think of to, to you that's listening to this. What are those metrics? What are the inputs? You've got the outputs, of course, which is the revenue, the new clients that say yes, that hire you for work, but the inputs, what are those inputs, those metrics that you can focus on every week and you document that? What did you do every day? And so what I started doing was that I would go back over time and I would look at the column of my biggest lessons learned. And I found that I was making a lot of the same mistakes. And so that gave me awareness of what character quality or what virtue or what other area of awareness do I need to have each month when I'm setting my monthly goals that can solve for that problem. And so I think if you look, if you, you know, what did you have for lunch three weeks ago? You don't remember, but if you documented it, you could see. And if you document like what you talked about, Tom, it's easier to control the behaviors than the outcomes. What was your greatest lesson learned? What was your greatest achievement every day? Then you're going to start to see certain trends. Yeah. So great advice, Jay. I'll turn it back to you to close us out. But just before I do, I I wanted to give you my own interpretation of the 80-20 rule. And that is that I say that uh, 80% of the people who cite the 80-20 rule get get it wrong (laughs) 20% of the time. No, they get it wrong 20% (laughs) of the time. (laughs) All right. Well, I I just proved it. So um, (laughs) isn't that, and and wasn't that uh, Aristotle that came up with the 80-20 rule? Uh, I'm 80% confident. Or, or was it Thomas Jefferson? You know, the, the, the misquoted, uh, the misquoted his people through history. Um, Hey, that I like, thanks Tom. I like that. Um, and I, I just want to share before we wrap up, I, this is a favorite habit of mine. It's something I learned from uh, and, and observed a, a very successful partner who I used to work with do. Um, and I guess I'll call it the delegation habit. So what he did was he would spend like 30 to 45 minutes at the beginning of each day and he'd identify everything on his plate that was capable of delegating to someone else. And he would he would spend that 45 minutes, he'd meet with his assistant, he'd meet with other attorneys, he'd meet with other administrative professionals like the marketing department or whoever within the firm, get everything off of his plate that he, that he was capable of doing or, or capable of sending to someone else, which allowed him to really focus his time on things that were you know high value, um, high leverage, high importance tasks. So that, that you know, as you're thinking about habits to ad- adopt, I know that one was particularly valuable um, for him and, and for others. Um, well, great. Scott, yeah, um, thank you. I think this was really valuable conversation. I think that, you know, when lawyers are thinking about 
you know, not just, you know, how they can become successful, but, you know, from your standpoint, how they can become marketable to others as well. How do you become portable and, and really have autonomy over your career? These certainly are some of the attributes and, and habits and behaviors that, that you'll want to adopt. Uh, so Scott, let's, um, I guess if you could just, t- uh, talk to our listeners a little bit, if they want to learn more about you, um, certainly, you know, mention your podcast and where people can find that, but where would you direct people to learn more about you and, and what you're doing? Yeah. And one thing I'll tell, I'll, I'll offer up on my blog, on my website, my website is attorneysearchgroup.com and I recruit partners for big law firms, but that's what I do. That's my business. I do a lot of podcast production on rainmaking because what every attorney wants, even if they don't want to move today, they want to learn how to grow his or her book of business. They want to grow that client base. So I give, uh, I interview experts on business development. It's called the Rainmaking Podcast. You can find the link on my site that I mentioned. If you go to my blog, I entitle it Random Thoughts and Musings. And I even have an article there that kind of gives an outline of business plan development. And that's something that anybody is welcome to, to check it out. If that helps you, that's great. Awesome. Well, really appreciate it, Scott. It was it was great chatting with you today. And to thank our you, listeners, Jay. thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you everyone for joining us and and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit the Thought Leadership Project.com. 